I'm beginning a series right from the first Sunday of the year, a series on Jesus Christ from the book of Luke. Turn to Luke, please. Luke chapter 1. We'll read from verse 26 to 45. In the sixth month, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of Judah. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his word and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will be with child and give birth to a son. And you are to give him the name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be? Mary asked the angel, since I'm a virgin. The angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. But the Holy One to be born so the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, and she who was said to be barren is in her sixth month, for nothing is impossible with God. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May it be to me as you have said. Then the angel left her. At that time, Mary got ready and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judea, where she entered Zechariah's home and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leapt in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. In a loud voice she exclaimed, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child you will bear. But why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me. As soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ear, the baby in my womb leapt for joy. Blessed is she who has believed that what the Lord has said to her will be accomplished. This is the word of God. May him be praised. Shall we pray? Lord, we ask your anointing upon us as we hear your word. Give us understanding. Give us fresh understanding of a text that is so old and help us to derive life out of out of this we we pray and so we ask that you speak to us we for we wait to hear we ask in Jesus name amen we, we are beginning a new series for this year right on the very first Sunday it's a series on Jesus as you see him in the book of Luke and this will carry us to Ash Wednesday. And from then on, we begin a period of Lent. And I have um, got a number of speakers to come on board to help me go through this period of Lent together. Now, in our reading, if you were not startled by anything at all, I'm sure you were startled by Mary being startled. Uh, that's a mouthful, I know. But Mary was startled. And she says, how can this be? Now, the key text for us this afternoon is 32, 33, and 35. 32, he will be great. 
and you will be called the son of the Most High, the Lord God will give him, that little baby, the throne of his father David. And this little baby will reign over Jacob's descendant forever. His kingdom will never end. And then if you go on to 35, it actually says, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And the Holy One to be born, that is this child, will be called the Son of God. Now, these words are not words you use on any normal child. In fact, these words are not words you use on any human person. You know, he will be called great, the son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. He will reign forever. I mean, who is this child that he should be spoken of this way? So the question who Jesus is, is huge. I've lost count the number of times Time magazine has Jesus depicted on its cover in the last two decades. And I've collected several issues, but it goes beyond my collection. Uh, somehow, Time magazine has depicted Jesus on its cover for so many times. So this man just will not go away. And he's not about to go away. So who is Jesus? This question has haunted the conscience of, of uh, human people for the last 20 long centuries. And that is 20 hundred years. That's a long time that this man has haunted human conscience and continues to do so. Really, it is a question that has to be asked because who is this man that it is with reference to his birth and his death that human history is split into two halves so that all events that you speak of, you speak of them as before his birth or after his birth. B.C. or A.D. One man divided human history into two halves. Uh, but what makes it more puzzling is the fact that when you take a closer look at this man Jesus, he really, now without irreverence, he really seems to be a bag of contradiction. And perhaps no one has put it better than James Stewart. James Stewart points some of these apparent contradictions out to us. And I quote, he says, he was the most humble of men that you could meet, and yet he claimed that he would come in the clouds of heaven with the glory of God. I mean, how, how do you match the two things? He was the most humble of persons you could ever meet, and yet he claimed that he would come again in the clouds of heaven in the glory of God. But let me go on. <clears throat> he was so austere. He was so austere that even evil spirits and demons shriek in terror as he approaches them. And yet he was so engaging, so attractive, so alluring to little children, to women, to men. The children would climb all over him and nestled in his arms. No one was ever half as kind or compassionate as, as, uh, to, to sinners as this man. And yet no one has spoken more scorching words about hell than this man. He would never break a bruised reed, ever so gentle, and yet he was ready to damn people and consign them to the fires of hell. He was a lowly, humble servant to his disciples, washing their feet, and yet when he walked into that temple that morning, the traders fell over one another 
in their mad rush to get away from the fire that they see blazing from his eyes. He saved others, and yet he couldn't save himself. So his life is a whole bag of contradictions, so to speak. These are some of the most inexplicable, befuddling mysteries that surrounds this person, Jesus Christ. And it puzzles you even more when you pause to take a look at how this one lone individual has shaped the world. Historian Philip Schaff described the overwhelming influence of Jesus, and I quote again, This Jesus of Nazareth, without money or arms, conquered more millions than Alexander, Caesar, Muhammad, and Napoleon. Without science, he shed more light on things human and divine than all the philosophers and scholars combined. Without the eloquence of schools, he spoke such words of life as were never spoken before or since, and produced effects that lie beyond the reach of orators or poets. Without writing a single line, he set more pens in motion and furnished themes for more sermons and orations and discussions and learned volumes and works of arts and songs of praise and the whole army of great men of ancient and modern put together. You know something? After 20 hundred years, we still baptize our children in his name. When we join two people in marriage, his is the blessing we invoke. When a man and a woman pledge their promise to live with each other together for life, it is before his altar that they plight their throats. When life is finally over, it is beneath his cross that we lay our dead, and it is finally in his message of eternal hope that we find such great comfort. You know, Encyclopedia Britannica devotes more space to Jesus Christ than any other religious figure or political leader. Well over 20,000 words. So 2,000 years ago, at a street in Jerusalem, people asked, who is this man? Matthew 12, 10, 21, 10. And now, 2,000, more than 2,000 years later, we're still asking, who is this man? You know, the vast opinions about who this man is is enough to give you a massive headache. <laughs> but I'll just spit out some of them. Some people will assure you that he was the first feminist. Others will insist that he was the first communist. Some cults would say that he was the divine man, whatever that might mean. Others say that he is a religious fanatic. Some others still say that he was a deluded fool, a deluded fool, a religious phony, a phantom. Some even claim that he was the first gay right activist. And there are many today who will say without hesitation that he was just a good man. That's all, nothing more, nothing less. And there are professors of religion today as we speak who will tell you that Jesus never claimed to be God, but merely a good moral teacher. And still there are others who look at him as a social and religious revolutionary, an apocalyptic figure perhaps, 
And there are as many Jesus as people would care to invent. There's the Jesus of the South American guerrilla liberation fighters. And in some parts of Bolivia, in some parts of Bolivia that you could go to, they have painted him like Che Guevara, exactly like him. So there are as many Jesuses, if I can put it that way, as there are those who would care to reinvent him. But our text this morning still wouldn't allow you to get away with it. Son of, son of God, whose kingdom will reign forever. So we have got to search the scriptures more carefully as to who this man really is. Now from a closer look at Luke's gospel, which we will look at for the next many weeks to come, you will find that he revealed himself, first of all, as a fully human person truly human in every aspect of the word. He had a human body. He had a human body that had, all the, that had all the limitations that a human body has. The strain of work made him very tired. He could feel hunger. One day when he couldn't go any further, he sat at a well and asked for a drink. Another day he fell asleep in the boat out of sheer fatigue. On the way to his death, Jesus was so weak, following the torture, he didn't even have the strength to carry his own cross right to the destination that he should carry it to. And on the cross, his throat became parched with, with, with thirst. So he had all the human limitations, the physical limitations that you and I have. But further, he experienced a whole range of human emotions. He could laugh, he could cry, he could weep. He could leap with joy. He was capable of warm compassion. He was capable of intense anger. He could agonize over the prospect of his own death. And in case you forget, he also has a human spirit that needed to be in touch with the Spirit of God in prayer. So, this man is fully human. Totally, completely human. But, but it's more than that. He's more than human. He's more than just the son of man, like all sons of men are. And there's got to be more in this person. So let's examine the scriptures. I will go now beyond the book of Luke to other passages. But first of all, let's examine his character. You know, of all people, his good friends would know him very well because they followed him every single day. They live up close and personal with him. They live in close quarters with him, so to speak. So they are the best people to shed light on his character. Now his enemies too, they hounded him from behind virtually every single day. So they too knew him up close and personal. So they too knew him very well. So both his friends and his foes turned their searchlights on this one man. And yet their verdict on him was the same. They could detect no flaw in his character. Peter said he was the lamb without blemish, without spot. He committed no sin and no deceit was found on his mouth. I mean, you have some friends whom you meet up with every single week. Could they speak like that of you? 
you know, if they don't see our floor this week, they see our floor next month, next year, sooner or later, your flaws will show. But these are people who walked with him day in, day out, and they say, we see no flaw in him. John, the very John who says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. This is the John that says of him, in him there is no sin. Pilate. Pilate, after several cowardly attempts to get rid of him, publicly washed his hands, detached himself from the blame, and his famous words were, I find no fault in this man. Herod couldn't find fault in him either. And Judas. Judas, having betrayed him, became so filled with remorse, ran to the temple, returned the 30 pieces of silver, all that time crying out, I have sinned, I have sinned, because I have betrayed innocent blood. And with that, he went out and he hanged himself. The thief says the same thing. The thief on the cross says, this man has done nothing wrong. And the centurion, having watched Jesus suffer and die, said, surely this man is the Son of God. Surely he is innocent. You know, the book of Hebrews says he was tempted virtually in every aspect and yet without sin. But perhaps none has put it more eloquently than John Stott. John Stott says, and I quote, We may read of his temptations, but we hear nothing of his sins. He submitted himself to baptism only because he wanted to identify himself with the sins of people. He had no sins to be washed. He was continually telling others to repent of their sins, but never once you find him repenting of sins. He showed no conscience of moral failure. He appeared to have no feelings of moral guilt, no sense of estrangement with God. You know, he exposes the duplicity of the Pharisees, and yet his own penetrating eyes could see nothing wrong in his own heart. But for me, the most amazing thing is this, and that is this. People, when they walk with God, the closer they walk with God, the more conscious they are, the more conscious they are of sin lying just under the pores of their skin. And that's true. With every godly people, the more godly they become, the more conscious they are of the fact that sin lies just beneath their skin. But here is one man who could walk so close with God and feel nothing of his own sinfulness. One day, turning to the people, he asked them, Which one of you convicts me of sin? The pin drop silence that followed must be deafening. For no one could. You know, here was one man who claimed to have walked perfectly with God. Now these are his actual words. I always do what is pleasing to the Father. Which one of you could say that? I can't say that. I always do what is pleasing to the Father. So this puts him in a class distinct not only from sinners, but also from saints. So the supreme moral character of Jesus is the first evidential proof that he is more than just a man. But secondly, let me push on. This man claims to be able to do for you and for me what we would have thought only God 
could do. It is only God who must forgive sins. If God does not forgive sins, you and I will perish. But this man takes it upon himself to forgive sins. Remember to the, to the paralyzed man, he says, My son, get up and walk. Your sins are forgiven. And to the woman who was caught in adultery, he said quite assertively, Your sins are forgiven. You know, it is at this point that the Pharisees attacked him repeatedly. This man has committed blasphemy, for no one can forgive sin but God alone. Remember on one occasion, the Jews began picking up stones to stone him. Remember what he says? He says, I have performed many miracles. For which one of these are you stoning me? And what did they reply? They say, we are stoning you for none of these miracles, but for blasphemy. Because you, a mere man, has made yourself God. You remember that? John ten thirty three. So who can he be? Who can this man be? Thirdly, let's look at the claim that he makes for himself. And he makes some rather astonishing claims for himself. Unprecedented in the history of religious leaders. Consider Socrates. Consider Buddha. Consider Confucius. The chief passion for Confucius and Muhammad and Buddha and the Gautama, consider all of these ones, they never fix attention on themselves. Never. They're not egocentric like Jesus. They're not. Rather, their concern has always been, follow my teachings. Buddha says, if you would follow the Eightfold Path, and the Four Noble Truths, you will reach Nirvana. And you will manage finally to jettison yourself out of the cycle of samsara. He's never pointing himself. He's never pointing others to him. He's always saying, follow my teaching. The same with Muhammad. Forget about me. Follow my teaching. But when you hear Jesus teach, you hear something totally radically different. Quite intentionally, quite deliberately, he puts himself at the heart of his own message. He does not come to teach some abstract truths about life or some virtue. He comes to win our devotion to him. He does not invite you to worship God necessarily, although he does, but he invites you to worship him. He says, if you love father and mother more than me, you are not worthy of me. And he says, I have come to turn a man against his father and a woman against her mother. He does not merely claim to have found the answer to the quandaries of life. He claims to be the answer. He says, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Unheard of, never. No prophet, no preacher, either before or after him, except those on the fringe of sanity, has ever dared make claims like that. His words stagger us with their audacity. One day, turning to the crowds, this was what he says. He says, this generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given except the sign of Jonah. And then he says this, the queen of Sheba, came to hear the wisdom of Solomon. 
the queen of the south rather came to hear the wisdom of Solomon but behold one who is greater than Solomon has come and he declares that at the day of judgment the final test will be this whoever is ashamed of me I the son of man will be ashamed of when he comes in the glory of the father and again he says who he who loses his own life or rather he who loses his life for my sake will find it in essence he's saying I and God are one remember he says before Abraham was I already exist I am he called the Almighty eternal father his father and that enraged the Jews because the Jews were fiercely monotheistic he even referred to God's kingdom as my kingdom he did not teach people to go to God he invited them to come to him he said those who have seen me have seen God he claimed to be the Christ one day he walked into the synagogue in Nazareth picked up a scroll opened it and read from that passage in, from Isaiah and soon as he finished he closed the scroll put it down and he looked up and he turned to the people and he says today scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing in other words because I stood here to read it scripture has been fulfilled and then he shocked his hearers by saying that he was going to come back to judge the world and to settle the eternal destiny of every man woman and child and he announced that in the long expected kingdom of God that will be inaugurated it will be inaugurated by him he says when it is inaugurated and he was going to occupy a special place in it but you know something and I've read the gospel so many times in my life and this is what I sniff out all the time that he's making all those claims he made all those claims very simply almost casually very naturally no pretensions no fuss very interesting all those were words of grandeur about himself and yet he said it very simply very casually further he appears to know everything I mean who can know everything but he appears to know everything he knew the thoughts of his friends Luke 8 he could read the mind of Nathaniel from about 200 meters away he could read the mind of Nathaniel he knew this he knew that the woman of Samaria had five husbands he knew that Lazarus was already dead when approached he knew that Judas will betray him and he knew that Peter will deny him all that before it happened in fact Jesus knew all that was to happen to him scripture says he knew all men he knew what was in their heart John 2:25 so it is an undeniable fact that in the person of Jesus you see God in human skin Paul puts it very simply he is the image of the invisible God for in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily Colossians 2.9 alright what are we to say about all this there are really 
all said and done, only two alternatives. Either he suffers from the highest degree of, of self-delusion, what is called absurd megalomania, or delusion of grandeur, or else he speaks the truth. You get the two options? Either he is so self-deluded, or he speaks the truth. If I were to put it another way, either he suffers from incredible arrogance of a, path of a pathological kind, or he speaks the truth. There are no two ways about it. But we know for a fact that he couldn't have been a, a lunatic. How do you know that he couldn't have been a lunatic? Because of the way he speaks. And because of the people he speaks to. Rational thinkers, philosophers, religious teachers. He could handle all that. He could handle the stress of his betrayal. He could handle the stress of his crucifixion while continuing to show deep compassion and mercy. And he couldn't have been a deluded fool, because deluded fools are never served by men of great intellect. And yet, take a look at the people who followed Christ. Thomas was a thoroughgoing skeptic. He demanded tangible empirical proofs. He was no fool. Luke was a competent physician. Peter was a tough Hated, tough-hearted fisherman. Matthew was a shrewd inland revenue officer. Paul was a cool-headed intellectual who studied under Gamaliel. So fools are never served by men of great intellect. He couldn't have been a religious fanatic. Religious fanatics don't speak the kind of words that he spoke. Clear, lucid, rational, coherent, perceptive, penetrating. And we can't conclude that he's self-deluded because all the time that he's making all those claims, you see no trace of delirium in this man, no trace of derangement. A self-deluded person thinks of nobody but himself. A self-deluded person is obsessed by his own importance. But this man lost himself to the welfare of other people around him. So search as you may, you will find no trace of crank in this man. He believed ardently in what he taught, but he wasn't a fanatic. His teachings may not be popular, but he was never eccentric. Who then is Jesus? The only conclusion is that he is God himself, come down in human flesh. In Jesus when you see Jesus, you see the one who was fully human, but at the same time, fully God. I like the way the ancient creed puts it. For many years, I worshipped as a young man in an Anglican church, the Church of England. And uh, in the evening service, the even song that we go to, we would pray from the prayer book. And this is the line we would pray every single Sunday evening. He was God of God, light of light. Very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father. Being of one substance with the Father. So although he was born into this world, like all babies are born, he was not conceived the way other babies are conceived. He wasn't conceived through the seed of an earthly father. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit. In the womb of the Virgin Mary, God took on human flesh and became man. Theologians call this 
theologians being theologians, they like hard words. They call this the incarnation. Uh, it means to be enveloped in human flesh. So God entered human history, and the Word of God tells us that people through their own wisdom could never find God. And that is the reason he had to be enveloped in human flesh. I mean, if Jesus never came, and I tell you to go out today and come back and see me two months later and tell me about who God is, what would you do? I'll say that again. If I give you an assignment, if Jesus never came, and I gave you an assignment, and I say in two months' time, come back and tell me who God is, what would you do? In two months' time, you would come back and you would say God is infinite, God is big, God knows everything, God is glorious. But you're, you're still baffled, you're still confused, you're still confounded, you're still groping in the dark as to who He is. If God hadn't revealed Himself, we would all be incurably agnostic. He had to reveal Himself. And that was how He chose to reveal Himself in the person of Jesus Christ. He's God. He's God come in human flesh. The full deity is found in Jesus. I want to close with one question, and that is this. I do not believe, and I hope I'm not saying this to any one of you, but if perchance there's one or two of you who are present here, who think that you have found the truth, that the search is over, simply because you found out who Jesus was, the search is not over for you. Surprise, surprise. I'll say that again. I do not believe that you can say the search is over, simply because you come to conclude in an academic way, in an intellectual way, who God is. That's not enough. Remember Saul of Tarsus? At the supreme moment of his life, when he was confronted by God, his first question was, Who are you? Remember when he fell off from his horse on the way to Damascus? Who are you? But he didn't stop there. He asked a second question. What would you have me do? So even if your first question has been answered, Who are you? And God says, I'm God. And you do zilch about it. You do nothing about it. It's because you haven't asked the second question. And the second question is, what would you have me to do? Most of you have heard that popular MTV song many years ago by Joan Osborne called, What If God Were One of Us? The second verse goes this way. If God had a face, what would it look like? And would you want to see it? If seeing meant that you would have to believe in things like heaven and in Jesus and the saints and all the prophets, Joan Osborne got it spot on that you may know God and yet you don't want to go further because if seeing meant that you would have to believe in these other things, most people stop at believing in God. They wouldn't go further. They wouldn't ask, what would you have me to do? Because that would bring great discomfort to your life. But God, if God is God, comfort or discomfort, let it be so. Let us worship Him. Let us bow before Him. 
Let us serve Him. And 2013 is as good as any year to start serving God, if you haven't already. Ask God for a slice of the work of His kingdom. Ask God for a slice of the work of His kingdom. And get your hands dirtied into working and building God's kingdom because He is God. In Jesus, the whole deity rests. And if He is God, we must serve Him and worship Him. Shall we pray? Lord, You have spoken and uh, we thank You for Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. But we pray that as we go through Luke in the next many weeks, we pray that You give us understanding of who Jesus is. Thank You for showing us and reminding us again today that He is God. And if He is, our next question shall be, and what would You have me do? Lord, what would You have me do in 2013? How would you want me to build your kingdom? How would you want my hands to be dirtied in building your kingdom? What is the slice of the work of your kingdom that you can give to me? Give it to me, Lord, and give me strength to follow through. We bless you, Lord. We thank you and we worship you. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.